Yeah, good morning. You know, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Steve, and I'm one of the pastors here. And this is my kind of like first time officially back here preaching in a while. I haven't been preaching for a while. So um, if you haven't met me, like, welcome. And um, I just got to say, like, Jason and Dan, like, I, I was loving, like, the bass and the, and the drums, like, today. So good work on that. Like, uh, the, uh, yeah, I don't get the whole, like, drums are of the devil thing, you know, so that... that <laughs> I have a whole theology that I could tell you about that sometime, but um, anyway, uh, I should probably like just give like the standard disclaimer about those things that I say that aren't scripted. So, but um, it's good to have you guys here. And as as uh, Brian said, we are we are re-entering the Book of John. You know, I took like seven weeks off of teaching this summer so I could work on some projects. One of them is our fall training. You know, as, a, as elders this year and as staff, as we all talked about where, what God wants us to, like what we believe that God wants to see improve here at Creekside this coming year. You know, we came up with the, the, the kind of unanimous like view that God wants us to grow in how we identify, inspire, and equip leaders here at Creekside. And and so one of the things that I gave myself to is our fall equip course. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it this morning. Um, it went out in the weekly. You can find information on the weekly. These, these brochures are kind of scattered around the lobby out there. Feel free to grab one. Um, I have one up here if somebody wants it like that's up here. Um, and then I'll, I'll give you more information next week. But we've had a full Sunday, and so um, I, I want to save like a lot of those details maybe for some other time. You know, as we're getting back into the Gospel of John, you know, the, this, this summer we spent some time looking at Psalm 23 and the Lord's Prayer. And as we're getting back into the Gospel of John, I thought it would be good to, like, review where we've been. So our goal this morning is to study the first 10 chapters of... Um... <laughs> Why are you guys laughing? You have Monday off, right? <laughs> Monday's a holiday. I've got, like, 48 hours. So <laughs> the... Uh... We're going to study the first 10 chapters. That's not a typo. And, and um, as, as we're looking at the, the Gospel of John, like we sang it here just at the end, like John gives us his purpose statement of what the book is about. And, and this is what he said in John chapter 20. He says, Therefore, many other signs Jesus, Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And it's a really simple premise that we would see Christ for who he is, that he is, he is the Christ, which means the Messiah, the long-awaited one who is going to bring in the fulfillment of all of the promises of God to his people. And that He's the Son of God, like, and we're going to see that, like, that He's God Himself. He shares the same DNA with God the Father, and life is found in His name. You know, as we get into this fall, you know, I always like, I used to teach school, and one of the things I miss about teaching school is just the regular rhythms of, like, the, of, like, the school year. I remember when I first stopped school and went back and got a real job, I was like, what? You only get two weeks off? Like... So I went back and became a teacher. Um, but I love those regular rhythms of, of life where at the end of the school year, you know, you get the sign-off sheet and like, like the secretary finally signs off your last thing and you're done. And then you start a new year and you have this, and this anticipation of what's to come and the satisfaction of like finishing a year. All the teachers are like nodding about that satisfaction of finishing, not so much the anticipation of what's to come. <laughs> 
You'll have to ask Meredith about her first day. That's pretty amazing. Um, the, uh, aside from that, but my challenge to all of us as we look through this this morning, and it's, and it's going to be this high-level overview of these first 10 chapters, but, you know, John's really clear. Life is found in Jesus. And as we kind of established this year, those, these new rhythms and the, these, these new activities and, and where we expend our energy, I guess my question to you is, are you... Are you structuring your life and are you spending your energies on those things that will really bring you life? Are you just kind of on that treadmill of doing all the stuff that everything has, everything's just coming your way and you're just barely trying to keep up and you feel like you're just being sucked dry? You know, what John says is like, life is found in believing in Jesus. And he's not just talking about like some future day. He's, and we'll see this as we go through the text. He's talking about right now today. Life is to be found in Jesus. So, you know, we're going to be going through these first 10 chapters. So turn with me to John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. And I'm going to start off here because this is where John kind of first introduces us to the person of Jesus. And he makes some statements here in verses 1 through 5 that are going to be woven throughout the whole rest of the book. And, and we're going to see all, all, all four of these themes kind of woven together as we go through. But um, please stand with me as I read John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. And then I'll pray, and then we'll just get into our study this morning. This is God's word for his church. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by him, and apart from him, nothing has come into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Let me pray. Father, I just thank you for Jesus Christ and that he came into this world to bring life um, to us and that he's the light of man. And Father, I just ask that your spirit would work to illumine us this morning, to um, open our eyes and enlighten them to the reality of who Jesus is so that we could follow him with greater devotion and greater love and experience the life that's found in him. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. You know, right here at the beginning of the book, like John introduces Jesus to us, and, he's, and he, he does it in this really kind of poetic way. He refers to him as the Word. And, and you can see later on in the chapter, I don't have time for it this morning, but Jesus is the Word of God. He is the revelation of God. He's the one that explains God to us. And then we find out that he's not just the explanation of who God is. He's actually God himself. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God and that all things came into being by him, and apart from him, nothing has come into being that has come into being. He is the creator of all things. Right out of the gates, John makes this bold statement about Jesus. He is God himself who has created everything. And then he says this down in verse um, 4, in him was life. In him was life. If you want to experience life, it's only going to be found in Jesus. That's one of the, this idea that Jesus is God himself is one of these themes that's going to be going through these first 10 chapters. This, this theme of life is a really strong theme that's going to be going through these chapters. Then it says, and the life was the light of men. He's the one that brings illumination and he's the one that brings um, clarity and he's the one that guides us. And he's also the one, the other thing that light does is he exposes us. I was, uh, one, this summer I was teaching at a church in Colorado that had, it was a big church and they had this giant screen behind, behind me and 
they had like cameras and lights and the whole like, like thing. And before the service, I heard somebody say like, yeah, so-and-so didn't know he was bald until he saw himself up on the screen. <laughs> and I was like, oh no, are they gonna project my face up on the screen? Like that would be creepy having me looking over my own shoulder. Because in all these lights, like having like a 10-foot version of my face, like fortunately, like I'm a little bit shadowed here where I stand. Light exposes us for who we are. And that brings us to the verse 5. And the light shines in the darkness. My translation reads, and the darkness did not comprehend it. A lot of your translations probably read the, the darkness did not overpower it. If you have the New American Standard like I do, you can see that it has a footnote that says, or overpower and the reason why is the, the Greek word is, is a little bit ambiguous. It's like our word grasp. Like I could say, oh, like I have a firm grasp of mathematics, which means I comprehend mathematics. Or I could say, I have a firm grasp of John's throat, right? <laughs> which means that I've overpowered John. Same thing's kind of true in the Greek. And I think as you look at the context of the book, like that overpower translation is a better translation because what, and we're going to see this later on, what John is telling us is that God himself has come into this world in the flesh and he has brought life with him and he illumines us to who we are and to what this world is about and he guides us. But in so doing, he exposes us and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness does not overpower it. That darkness pushes back against the light, but won't ultimately be victorious. That's one of the other themes that plays through this whole book, is there's this, there's this duality of the struggle between light and darkness, and darkness loses. And that's where we start with these four themes. Jesus is God, he's life, he's light, and he's resisted in the, by, by the dark. And in fact, if you, I, I think probably the best way to understand it, I really struggled with an outline this morning, about two points I've I, I struggled with anywhere between like three points and four points and two points. And my two points this morning are simply that in chapters one through four, that the light arises, that when the light arises, Jesus brings something new to us. And then the light intensifies. And as, he intens as the light intensifies, he reveals his person more and more. And then there's this increasing resistance to the light. In fact, I think you could view these first 10 chapters that way. It's like there's just this increasing illumination to who the person and work of Jesus is. And with that illumination, right alongside of it, woven together with it, is this increasing like resistance to his work. And in fact, next chapter, chapter 11, that we'll, Lord willing, look at next week, is kind of like the high point of that revelation and, and resistance that will take us into that final week of Jesus' life where he actually fulfills what what uh, John says about him in chapter 1, verse 29 here. John the Baptist looked at Jesus and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This darkness rises up to resist Jesus to the point where Jesus becomes a sacrifice to take away our sin. That's chapter 1. You know, and it's interesting, as we, as we get into chapter 2, we begin to see that Jesus is bringing something new as the light arises. If you have your Bibles, like, try to hang with me here, because I'm not just going to project all the verses up there. I want you to kind of flow through me. If you're using your phone, you can pretend like you're scrolling through your Instagram feed. It's the same motion to scroll through your Bible. <laughs> I know you're familiar with the Instagram feed. I know you can do this. 
okay? See, you give me time off and the sarcasm just comes. Like. But we, we get into chapter 2, and, and in chapter 2, like, Jesus comes on the scene and begins the, kind of his first work, and the, one of those first signs that John says points us to who he is, and it's this wedding feast. And at this wedding feast where they're celebrating this love of the bride and the groom, um, the wine runs out. And what we see here in verse 6, I think it's in verse 6, it says, that now there were six stone water pots that were there for the Jewish ritual of purification, in John chapter 2, verse 6. And what we're going to see, what we saw as we went through John chapter 2, and let me just pause here and give a disclaimer. Like, if you're new to the Bible, like, I'm really sorry that you're here this morning. Um, <laughs> because we're going to be blowing through it. Like, and I'm going to try to explain it in a way that hopefully you can hang with me. If you can't hang with me, like, I apologize. That's my weakness as a communicator, not a weakness of God's word. And give me a chance next week and come back. Um, I'm glad you're here that, you know, you get what I mean by that. Like, and for those of you that are familiar with the Bible, like, run with me here because we've got 10 chapters and I, I want to let you out on time. So, but here we are in chapter 2, verse 6, and we see these six stone water pots. It's like 120 to 180 gallons of water, and they're for the Jewish ritual of purification, and Jesus turns them into wine. And we find out later in the story, it's the best wine. And it's pointing us toward, like when he talked to his mom about it, he's like, my, what, what, what do I have to do with this? My hour hasn't come. And he's, he's hinting towards that hour when he offers himself up as a sacrifice for the world. And what we find out in chapter 2 is that Jesus is the one who does away with all of the old rituals of purification, and he takes care of sin himself. There's this theme in these first like four chapters of replacement. Jesus replaces like man-centered purification rituals with himself. And this, new, and this new wine points us towards that day, like because of, for those that are purified by the blood of Jesus, like one day we will celebrate that great wedding feast before him, like where, where love is, is like perfect and unimpeded. <laughs> Jesus replaces ritual purification with himself. We go to the end of chapter two, like beginning in in verse, um, in verse 13, Jesus goes up to Jerusalem, he enters the temple, and he doesn't like what he sees going on in the temple, so he knocks some heads, and he drives everybody out of the temple. And then he says this in verse, um, in verse 19, well, verse 18, he says this, the Jews therefore answered and said to him, what sign do you show to us, seeing that you do these things. And Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. What Jesus is saying is like, my resurrected self is going to replace this temple. And the temple was the, was the place in the nation of Israel where, where God's glory was manifested, where the worship of God was engaged, where, where God revealed himself to his people. And what Jesus is saying is this, this building that you make such a big deal of, is going to be done away with, and I'm going to replace it with my resurrected self. And in me, you'll see the glory of God. In me is the presence of God. In me is where true worship is going to take place. And then he's going to create like people by calling them into his body, into this new assembly of people called the church. Like Jesus is replacing the old temple with himself and his work in the church. He replaces purification. He replaces the temple. And then we get into John chapter 3. 
And this is in John chapter 3, the first kind of like longer um, d- like teaching of Jesus here. We have a, a, like half the chapter is, is Jesus' own words. And he, he encounters this teacher of the law like by, by the name of Nicodemus. He was a, a, like a, a respected Jewish rabbi. And, and this Jewish rabbi comes to him. And, and what Jesus is going to tell him is that I'm going to replace all of your man-centered efforts with something that's completely outside of your ability. Look what he says starting in verse, um, verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born again. Unless you experience like a completely new life, you'll never enter into that place of my kingdom, that that place of my reign and my rule where everything is, is restored. Unless you experience new life. And Nicodemus, like rightly so, says, said to him, verse 4, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What Jesus is saying is that there's this new covenant that he's bringing in, that, that reference to the water and the spirit is a reference back to like Ezekiel 36, where he spoke about his new covenant. And He says, unless God comes and acts upon you and removes your heart of stone and gives you a new heart by the work of his spirit, you're never going to enter the kingdom of God. Like, no matter how hard you try, it's, it's a work of God by his spirit to transform your heart. And without that, like, you have no hope. You know, skip down with me to down in verses, down in verse 14. He talks about how to access that here in verse 14. And then he says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What Jesus is talking about there when he's talking about being lifted up in the wilderness is he's referring back to this incident in the desert when the people were wandering in the, in the desert and they were being bitten by snakes and dying because of their disobedience to the Lord. And God told Moses to put like a serpent up on a stake. And if you looked to that serpent, you would be like delivered from the snake bite. And the people, but the people lived. What Jesus is saying is that there, there will be a day that's coming when I will be put up on a stake. I will be lifted up from the earth. And if you look to me, you'll have life. And in fact, he goes on. Look what he says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged, and he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So here you have those themes like Jesus says, if you want to live, if you want to escape judgment and condemnation, if you want to experience life, you need to believe in the Son who was lifted up and died in your place. Then you'll escape judgment. But then look what he says. Verse 20, for everyone who does evil, oh no, verse 19, and this is the judgment that the light is come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. Exposed. 
But he who practices the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Here Jesus talks about that very thing I said in my introduction, that as the light increases, so does like, like resistance. Why? Because men love darkness rather than light, and they don't want to come into the light lest their deeds be exposed. The light illumines, it teaches, it leads, and it exposes. And unless you really, really believe that the Son of Man was lifted up, so that whoever looks on him won't perish but have eternal life. Unless you really believe that he's the one that takes away your sin, he's the Lamb of God, you're just going to kind of cower in the darkness. But Jesus says those who practice the truth, I think this is verse 21, come into the light that your deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. I think some of your translations be having been done in God. Like when we come to Jesus and we trust in Jesus and we're willing to like follow him and let that light like shine upon us, we get to be transformed. And our life then becomes more and more in line with his will and our deeds are wrought in God or our deeds and done in God and it all belongs to him because it's not my virtue that brought me into the light. It was my belief that allowed me to come into the light so I could be transformed. Jesus is telling Nicodemus like there is... Nothing you can do, Nicodemus, that's going to restore your relationship with me. It's with God. It's you got to believe in me, the one who's going to be lifted up and come into the light and practice the truth so that you can be transformed. Well, then, chapter four, the very next encounter we have is with this woman of Samaria at Jacob's well. So Jesus replaces our old means of purification. He replaces our old worship. He replaces like our old life with a new one. And here he shows up at Jacob's well, this well that the father Jacob, who was the father of the 12 tribes of Israel, gave to his sons to like nourish them and care for them hundreds of years before. Actually, 1,400 years before or something like that. And he goes to this well and he meets this woman who is, is disenfranchised and marginalized in almost every way. She's a Samaritan, which is this despised and looked down upon people group by the Jews. Like uh, Jews wouldn't even talk to Samaritans. In fact, it said if you like ate with a Samaritan, you'd be unclean. It's like eating with a pig. She was kind of morally like marginalized because she had been married five times and the, the guy that she was, she wasn't even married to the guy that she was living with now. And, and she was a woman, which good rabbis didn't like talk alone with a woman. And yet Jesus shows up at this well and it's just he and her and he engages her in a conversation. And look what he says in verse 13 of chapter four. Well, I'll start at, I'll start at verse 11 because Jesus asks her for a drink. And then in verse 11, she responds, Jesus said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? And Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. So Jesus makes this claim to this woman. It doesn't matter who you are. 
It doesn't matter what race you are or what sins you've committed or what gender you are. If you come to me, I will satisfy your deepest thirst. This, this plan of salvation is that, is that he takes away the sin of the world, not just like good Jewish people or not just the people that look like us or the people that like act like us or the people that believe like us. He takes away the sin of the world. His offering was for anyone who believes. Well, he, he engages her a little bit more and then she goes and tells like everybody in the village about Jesus. Well, actually, I'm skipping ahead of myself. Look down with me at verse... Um, Verse 21, because the woman kind of gets into this theological discussion with Jesus about worship. Down in verse 21, he says this, Believe me, an hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship that which you do not know. We worship that which we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Now listen. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. He's like, all of those old things, like, do you worship on this hill or that hill? Do you, like, no, God the Father has sent the Son into this world to seek worshipers who worship in spirit from the depths of their being, renewed by the Holy Spirit of God and in accordance with his truth. Like, anyone who comes to faith in Jesus and wants to become his worshipers can this, and this woman at Samaria was the least likely candidate in the disciples' mind. The disciples show up, and they're like, whoa, what's this woman having talking to Jesus for? She goes into the city, and then she tells everybody about Jesus. They come out of the city and look down at verse 42. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what I have said to you that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. This thing that Jesus came to do, this new thing, isn't about Jacob and his 12, 12 sons. It's about the entire world. Whoever believes in the world can experience life. You know, if you look at... Um, well, I lost my place here, but... One more, there's one more account for us, one more event that I think is important for us in, in chapter 4 before we move on to 5. In chapter, in chapter 4, another marginalized guy at the end there, starting at verse 46, another marginalized guy who actually worked for Herod. He was one of Herod's, like, employees. And if you don't, if you don't know anything about Herod, he was a dirtbag. And um, <laughs> just put it that way. Herod Antipas, he, I, he's the guy that beheaded John the Baptist. Um, he's just, like, a generally all-around not-nice guy. I think he killed his, I don't remember all the history, I think he killed his brother and married his brother's wife, and um, just, he's a dirtbag, right? So, and this guy works for him, and he hears about his son is like sick to the point of death, and he hears that Jesus, about this guy Jesus, and he comes to Jesus, and he's like, come down to the town where I'm from and heal my son, and they're, I think they're like 14 miles away. And Jesus says to him in verse um, 49, 
Well, I'll start here at verse 49. The royal official said to him, come, sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your son lives. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he started off. There's this account at the end of chapter 4 here of this guy who heard Jesus' words. He's, but he's 14 miles away from what he wanted to see. But he heard Jesus promise, go your way, your son lives. And it says that he believed and he started off. This is meant to be a picture of genuine faith because at the end of the book, um, we, we, I think we sang about it or we read it in, in the song that blessed are those who do not see yet believe is how John ends this, like talks about it at the end of the book. And this guy didn't see, but he believed the word of Jesus and that led him to action. And then later on, he saw Jesus work and he even believed even more. So there's the question for us. We've just heard about this new purification, that everything that's wrong with me can be made right because of Jesus. This new, this new um, temple that, that worship is now um, focused on, simply on Jesus Christ and as part of his community of people, his body, the church. We've heard about like this new life that comes by the Spirit of God when he comes upon us. And we've heard that um, it's for anybody, regardless of who they are. Like, do we believe that? And if we believe that, when we set off, what would that look like for us? What does it look like as you plan, like, this next week? If you really believe that my, my healing and my purification is only found in Jesus and his work, not my own. What, what would your priorities change if you were like, man, I, I'm going to worship God in the flesh, Jesus Christ who raised from the dead, and, and I'm a part of his body, the church. I'm built upon him as a living stone, Peter talks about. What would it look like if you really believed that it doesn't matter what you did if you'd simply look to the one who was raised up on the stake for your sin to take it away. Like what would, what would change in your affections and in your devotion and your pursuits? He's God in the flesh that's come down to reveal the Father to us and accomplish his work. And I think we just treat him like my butler right? Like, oh, I'm doing my life. Oh, I run into this problem. So, Jesus, can you come help me fix this problem? Right? No, he deserves all our worship, all of our allegiance, all of our devotion, all of our work is from him. That's what he came to do. And we saw, like, as the light dawns, we saw him, like, transform and replace everything. Well, these next few chapters, wow, okay. These next few chapters, um, the next five. Uh, there's a new theme that comes out in these next five chapters, and it's kind of like on the background, the backdrop of these next five chapters is the people of God wandering in the wilderness. And in the wilderness wanderings, after they were rescued from Egypt, what we saw is that they were in this land that always left them hungry, that always left them thirsty. It was this, this desert land with not enough water, not enough food. And as they were wandering in this land that just led to their hunger and their thirst, like God fed them with manna, this bread that came down out of heaven. God brought water out of a rock, you know, and provide water for them in the wilderness and quench their thirst. 
God led them in this land where they really had no idea where they were supposed to go through this pillar of fire, this light that led them in the wilderness. And those three things, the manna and the water and the light, are um, really kind of drive like this whole section, chapters 5 through really 9, and then he, he shifts a little bit on chapter 10. But before he gets there, we have the beginning of chapter 5, Jesus, having just like kind of revealed that he was, he was doing away with the old and starting the new, like immediately goes over and tips over the sacred cow of the Sabbath that the Jews had. Like they loved the Sabbath, like and the Sabbath is a big deal, and he heals the guy on the Sabbath, and by healing the guy on the Sabbath, he breaks the law, or at least their interpretation of the law. And so he immediately incurs like the resistance as he shows that he's the one that can bring healing. Look at, look at verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 16. He says, and for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And he answered, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. It's interesting. So they're like, hey, Jesus, you're breaking all of our religious rules. You should probably stop that. And in fact, it looks like he does it more than once because it says he was doing these things, plural, on the Sabbath. You're breaking all of our, like, our biggest like, religious rule. You need to stop that. And Jesus doubles down. He's like, well, you know what? My father is working on the Sabbath, and I am too. And then they say this. Look at verse 19, 18. For this cause, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So here's Jesus' claim. Like he, he re, this light intensifies. Guess what, guys? Like I do the work of God. In fact, he and I are like this. In fact, we're the same DNA. We're the same substance. And they're like, we've got to kill him. That's craziness, right? There's this resistance that happens. And then we get into chapter 6. Brian talked about this a little bit, so maybe I'll try to shorten this section of it here. But in chapter 6, like Jesus feeds the 5,000. They're out in the kind of wilderness. He provides food for them out of just five loaves and two fishes. And then Jesus makes this point down in verse um, 31, I think it is. Yeah, down in verse 31 of chapter 6. He says, Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus therefore said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus is like, well, he says it down in verse 35. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. So Jesus just comes out and says it like, I've come down out of heaven. I've stepped out of my throne room above and come down unto the earth, and I am providing myself to this world as bread to satisfy your deepest hungers. Jesus is the bread of life. You know, and Brian brought this up. You know, I'll skip ahead to, um, to verse 66. You know, Jesus continues. He, he kind of ups the ante by, by uh, 
going to that passage that Brian talked about where he talks about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, which is this picture of being like completely identified with Jesus. He's not literally talking about eating his flesh and blood, but it's this picture of like complete identification with him. And then he says this in verse, this is what it says in verses 66, starting at verse 66. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Jesus said, therefore, to the twelve, you do, you do not want to go away also, do you? And Simon Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Jesus is the one who gives us life. And Peter's like, there is no one else to go. As hard as these sayings are, there is no one else that we should follow who can, who can quench our deepest thirst, who can satisfy our deepest hungers, who can solve that problem of our guilt before God and take away our sin. You have the words of eternal life. So that's this picture of of Jesus providing food in the desert. Look, look over at John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39. Jesus goes up to the, the temple at this feast that commemorates the, the wandering of the people in the wilderness. And, and down in verse uh, 37, Jesus, he's in the temple. He's surrounded by all these crowds. This is the most popular feast where everybody would go up to Jerusalem and celebrate this thing. So the, the temple is packed. Verse 37, and on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. What he's saying, if, if you come to believe in me, like, God is going to pour out his spirit upon you, which is recorded for us in Acts chapter 2, which when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, like, his spirit comes to dwell within you and he transforms your heart. <coughs> Whoever comes to him will have the springs of living water and he will experience life. If any man is thirsty, let him come to me. And drink. There was this, there was this uh, ceremony that the Jews did where they would carry water out and they would pour it out to symbolize like the, the fact that God provided water for them in the desert. And he says, I'm the water that you really need. If you're thirsty in this world, come to me. And then look what happens in verse 44. Skip down to verse 44. He immediately incurs, like having made these claims, Look what happens in verse 40. And some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid their hands on him. You see this continued hostility of the darkness pushing back against the light. The more Jesus reveals about himself, the more resistance it has. We're going to see that kind of really grow in a minute. But he's talked about this living water. He's talked about the... Um, and I've been going so long, I forgot where I just was. Um, Go over to chapter 8, chapter 8, verse 12. You know, and, and this, this is at that same temple. Look what he says. Again, therefore, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. 
You know, in the, back in the wilderness wanderings where the people were wandering through that desert land, there was this pillar of fire that led them in the, in the desert. And what Jesus is saying is, like, I am that pillar of fire. The pillar of fire represented the presence of God. I am God himself that leads you through the desert. And if you follow me, what does he say? You shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. You will experience life the way it's supposed to be. So here's Jesus, like, man, I'm, I'm the water that you need. I'm the bread that you need. I'm the light that you need. Just follow me. And it's, it's all set in this context of, of this wilderness wandering in the world. And that brings us to this question, you know, if what are we going to look to like to satisfy our deepest hungers and quench our deepest thirsts and to guide us in those moments of like confusion and darkness. Jesus is like, I'm the one you need. Over and over and over again, he makes that claim. I'm the one that satisfies your hunger. I'm the one that quenches your thirst. I'm the one that guides you as the light of the world. And yet, what do we pursue? We pursue all sorts of other stuff except him. But he who walk, follows me will not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. You know, and then look at the responses that Jesus gets. Like chapter 8, verse 52. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death? Jesus made that claim just before that, but they're like, oh, you must be demon-possessed, dude, <laughs> right? Uh, verses 57 through 59. Well, I'll start at verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. It's interesting. Jesus says, like, you know what? Abraham saw me. And then they say, the Jews therefore said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. I don't know if, you, if you're not familiar with the Bible, that, that's going to be like, whoa, Jesus needs to take grammar again. Good thing school year is starting up. Because that I am statement is what God told Moses. When Moses said, Who's gonna, who do I tell the people of Israel sent me back here to deliver them from slavery in Egypt? And God said to him, tell them that I am sent you. The ever-existing, ever-present one who, from whom, who created all things, who has no beginning and no end, who just always is. And Jesus says, before Abraham was born, I am. Look at the Jewish response. They didn't miss it. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him. As the light increases, so does this hostility against him. And then you have, then you have something else interesting that happens. In chapter 9, verse 34, Jesus heals a guy who had been born blind. He brings light into this guy's dark world. And the guy had never even seen Jesus I mean, because he, Jesus, he, Jesus told him, go wash in this pool. And then he washed and he could see, but Jesus had already been gone, so he hadn't even seen Jesus. But then all the Jews are like, dude, how did you get to see? And he's like, well, this guy, Jesus healed me. And then it's this big thing that goes on in chapter 9. You can read about it. But then in verse 34, um, 
this guy, this guy's like talking to the Jewish leaders and, and just keeps telling about how great Jesus is. And then in verse 34, they say to him, and they answered and said to him, you were born entirely in your sins. And are you teaching us? As this guy was talking about the great things that Jesus had done for him, they're like, no, 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 no. You, you were this blind guy who was born blind and probably was born blind because you had committed some like evil. It was God's judgment upon you. So you think you're going to teach us? And they threw him out of the synagogue. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had put him out and Jesus and finding him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered and said, and who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. This blind man worshiped Jesus because Jesus is God in the flesh. But I don't want you to miss something. He was cast out from the synagogue. He was rejected by his own people, but he found Jesus. You know, there's this reality in this world that we live in, especially as, as like the, the boundaries between light and dark seem to be getting more and more clear in the world that we live in. Before, it was all kind of mashed together into this lukewarm mess that I'm glad we're getting out of, actually. But as the, as the lines between light and darkness are are getting more and more distinct. So does like the hostility of the darkness against the light. And this guy was cast out from everybody that he, that like his people, but yet he found Jesus. In fact, Jesus tells his disciples that in John chapter 15, verses 18 and 19. Listen to what he says. I think I have it on the screen. John 15, 18 and 19. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. He's not just talking to his disciples. That same truth is Jesus' words to all of his followers. Don't think that you can live a life of devotion to Jesus Christ and a life of friendship with this world and all of its beliefs and systems and values because Jesus chose us out of the world. And don't be surprised when hostility comes your way, Jesus is telling them, right? If, it, if the world hates you, it hated Jesus first because guess what? Not everybody loved Jesus. In fact, we've seen multiple times that people wanted to kill him over and over and over. And it's just going to get worse. that people want to kill him. And we've been chosen out of this world. And we need to just take honest assessment of what we really value. Are we going to be this year be devoted to Jesus Christ, be devoted to his purposes, like be about that work of the gospel in our city? Or are we just going to like kind of blend in out of friendship with the world, out of fear for like the, what it might look like to be hated from this world, like do something different. Jesus is like, what did he say? Let me go back and read it. If the world hates me, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of this world, the world would love its own. 
but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world because of this the world hates you. Like Jesus wants us to live distinctly as his people, holding up like the greatness of who he is and what he's accomplished for them. And oftentimes, just as it was when he was alive, that is met with hostility. But then that brings us to chapter 10. And Brian, you can bring the band up here. But here in chapter 10, Jesus begins to talk to his disciples. And he starts to talk to them about, about being their good shepherd. And down in verse 11, look what he says. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. You know, when, as we enter into this world, we can enter into this world following Jesus as our good shepherd, the one who's laid his life down for us, the one who can nourish us and care for us and feed us. We, we looked at Psalm 23 where we saw that, that, that um, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. So Jesus is saying, like, I am the good shepherd, and I'm, I'm going to lay down my life for the sheep, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and thy staff, they comfort me. And then what does he say in Psalm 23? You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You know, the reality is this, is that this world is hostile to the things of God, and friendship with the world is hostility with God. And Jesus is like, no, I'm the good shepherd, follow me. I'm the one that gives life and brings light and, and satisfies your deepest needs and takes care of your like, sh most shameful guilt because I lay down my life for the sheep. So why don't we stand and just worship him as Brian closes, and then I'll, I'll close us when he's done.